0: Who is Jesus? What is his mission? We're following Jesus as he builds a movement of misfits traveling through Galilee, bringing good news to the ordinary, broken, confused, and undeserving. Who will choose to follow him? How will he react in the face of conflict? What is the good news of God's kingdom really about? Let's pick up where we left off. Church, good morning. My name is Mike, and I'm the site pastor for Grace Harbor Creek. Now, we plan our sermon series out ahead of time here at Grace. And when the time came for this series, Derek asked Pastor Scott and I to pick between October 1st and November 26th. Scott, having seniority, picked uh, October 1st, and I got today. You might not know this about him, but Pastor Scott is an avid hunter. Uh, and while you normally can't hunt on Sundays, today is an exception because the deer rifle season started this weekend. You can hunt today. So I'm not saying he had ulterior motives. I'm just saying if you're at Grace McCain this morning, maybe you should look around and see if Pastor Scott is there or not. I'm sure he is. Probably. Well, most of you know that in September, we began an almost two-year-long journey through the Gospel of Mark. And we'll be taking a break from it to get a look at Christmas behind the curtain starting next week. And I'd love for you to come back and join us for that series. But today, we're finishing up this chunk of Mark, which we've called A Movement of Misfits. For those of you that have ridden along with us so far, I hope you'd agree that this has been such a profitable journey. And one of the benefits of plowing through a book of the Bible is that we don't get the luxury of pasting over verses that we don't like or or which are confusing. And one of those is in our passage today. We'll be sitting in Mark 41, verses 21 through uh, 34, but verse 25 is kind of a doozy. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Does that sound fair? Because honestly, to me, it sounds like the worst bits of capitalism and socialism smushed together. For to the one who has, more will be given, and from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. Is that compelling? Does it make sense? Now, I hope this morning that we can uncover the meaning and context of Jesus' important words here. If you weren't with us last week, Derek taught through the parable of the sower. And that is the, the main parable or story in a subsection of parables that are included in the end of Mark chapter 3 and through all, just about all of Mark chapter 4. We learned last week that Jesus' parables were unique because they were meant to distinguish between those who believed his words and those who didn't. Parables weren't meant to create some barrier to be overcome or teaching to be understood, but rather to identify who grasped the truth and who didn't. Derek said, parables were a method of separating the curious from the serious. So let's begin in our passage today, Mark uh, chapter 4, verses 21 through 23. And he, Jesus said to them, is a lamp brought in to be put under a basket or under a bed and not on a stand? For nothing is hidden except to be made manifest, nor is anything secret except to come to light. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. Jesus is saying the truths of these parables, which he's been telling, are meant to be made known. Just because these parables can be difficult to understand doesn't mean they should stay that way. That's why Jesus launched into an explanation of the parable of the sower when his disciples approached him afterwards and asked him about it. In one of the commentaries I read while studying Mark 4, it said, "...the concealed is in its very nature destined to be revealed in its time." A thing absolutely and forever concealed would not be concealed. It would, as such, have no meaning. For example, we all know somebody from Texas. Texans always self-identify, right? I mean, what's the point of being from Texas if you don't tell literally everybody you meet immediately within the first interaction that you are a proud Texan, and then climb up into your way too big truck and drive away? If you're from Texas, Please forgive me, I'm just kidding, kind of. Jesus' words are not meant to be veiled forever, but to be revealed. These verses serve as a complement to Mark 4.12 that we read last week when Jesus said they will see but not perceive, hear but not understand. Just because the truths of these parables separated the curious from the serious didn't mean that they should be hidden or left unexplained. Uh, in verses 33 and 34, with many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. I think there's an implicit command here to disciples and to us to pursue and apply these truths, which is perfect because we have two short parables to chew on in our passage today. And both of these parables are specifically about the kingdom of God. But before we dive into them, Let's talk about what Mark means when he uses the term kingdom of God because it can be somewhat confusing, so I think it would be helpful if we defined it. And we also need to articulate how the kingdom of God relates to Mark's usage of the term gospel. Are they synonymous? Are they different? So remember all the way back in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, we read, Now after John was arrested, Jesus came into Galilee, proclaiming the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. These two terms, the gospel and the kingdom of God, each have different nuances. But for Mark, they converge together in Jesus. Jesus is the content of the gospel, the good news of salvation, and Jesus is the embodiment of God's coming kingdom. The old Sunday school answer for everything, Jesus is, it checks out here. Uh, It's kind of like water, right? Water can be liquid, of course, but it can also be a solid, uh, i.e. ice, uh, or even a gas. And no matter what we're holding, or what we're beholding, at the most foundational level, it's simply the chemical compound, H2O. In the same way, every aspect of our faith always ends up at Jesus. I read a uh, a great quote that sums up this concept. It says, The gospel is about God's kingdom invading the earth. The kingdom of God was embodied in Jesus himself, displayed in his incarnation, ministry, death, and resurrection. So, with all that in mind, what does Jesus teach us about the kingdom of God? Let's continue in uh, verse 26 here. And he said, The kingdom of God is, is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground, He sleeps and rises, night and day, and the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. The earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. This parable, these couple of verses here, this story, this parable is unique because it doesn't appear in any of the other gospel accounts written by Matthew, Luke, or John. And just knowing that should make us lean in a little because Mark uniquely included it to communicate something specific. Notice that in verse 26, the man is scattering seed. This guy, is, he's putting in some effort, right? He's gotta buy the seed, prepare the soil, get up early, drag that big bag out, and finally throw it on the ground. And that's a lot of work. But how does the growth happen? He knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. It's not the farmer making the earth produce. It's God. God makes the growth and chooses to use the human effort to achieve his inevitable outcome. And remember, this parable is being applied to the kingdom of God, not personal salvation or evangelism necessarily. And the key takeaway of this parable is that the end result, which God has designed, will surely come. The farmer can't make the seed sprout any faster. He can't even make it sprout at all. He knows some best practices, but he relies on God to bring about the imminent harvest. It's not necessary for us to know how or when the kingdom of God is coming. We're not in a position to dictate to God how his gospel should reach the ends of the earth. We're just called to play our part. Plus, I don't get the vibe that this guy is obsessing about millenniums or trumpets or dragon babies. And That was a confusing sentence. You should take a read through Revelation. It's fascinating but God's process of bringing about his end state is one that requires requires patience and humility from us. No political ideology or candidate, no specific country or nation, no action or inaction on the global stage will do anything to speed up or slow down the coming of God's kingdom. I think we just have a tendency to try to hurry up Jesus' return by placing our hope in who we vote for, or the charity we give to, or one side's victory in a conflict, but those are sorely misplaced hopes that won't ever deliver. As people who've placed our faith in Jesus, we have to remember that God is in control and Jesus will certainly return on his timeline. We can have confident hope in the future that God has planned for us while being content to humbly, faithfully, and patiently play our role. And Jesus describes another aspect of the kingdom of God in the famous parable of the mustard seed. So in verse 30, and he said, with what can we uh, compare the kingdom of God or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, which when sown on the ground is the smallest of all the seeds on the earth. Yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches that the birds of the air can make nest in its shade remember we're talking about the kingdom of God here the kingdom of the all-powerful all-knowing ever-present being running the entire universe the original audience would have expected a much more impressive analogy or at least a better seed right but here's a picture of a mustard seed uh, and while I was researching for this sermon I found out that it takes roughly a thousand seeds to fill an eight ounce bottle of mustard I mean, Come on, these things are tiny. But here's a picture of a mustard plant when it's grown. A mustard plant can grow up to 12 feet tall and the stalk can get up to four inches thick. That small tiny seed turns into a disproportionately large plant. Emily and I have a garden in our backyard and I promise you, we don't use any seeds that small, but we also don't have any plants that get that big. The key takeaway of this parable is the small beginning versus the big ending. Just like the smallest garden seed grows into the biggest garden plant, Jesus' ministry seemed small and insignificant at first, yet it resulted in the greatest institution ever made, the Kingdom of God. We learn from these two short parables that this movement of misfits had small beginnings, but it will have a huge ending, and have no doubt that glorious end is inevitable. So. With all that as a back- backdrop, let's get to those verses we skipped over earlier, verses 24 and 25. And he said to them, Jesus said to them, "'Pay attention to what you hear. "'With the measure you use, it will be measured to you, "'and still more will be added to you. "'For to the one who has, more will be given. "'And from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away.'" Hearing is clearly a theme in Mark 4. Verses 9 and 23 repeat each other almost verbatim, and hearing is mentioned three times in verses 23 and 24, but I really like how the Kingdom New Testament translates the first part of verse 24. It says, be careful with what you hear. This command, this imperative to hear is less about the physical sound entering your eardrums and more about the spiritual receptivity of our hearts. Just like your cell phone it's not just about receiving the signal or not it's about what you do with it that matters i started uh, running trail cameras for the first time on the two properties i'm hunting this year and it's been great because i receive pictures of deer right to my phone i get to see if they're does or fawns or bucks what time of day do they come out are they alone are they in a group what was the moon phase and temperature when they appeared and this is all great information but eventually. I've got to do something with it. I can't hang trophy antlers on my wall unless I actually go out early, get up in my stand, and hunt. By the way, that's uh, that's Rufus. I'm still looking for him, so if you see him, uh, definitely let me know. But the same concept applies to us and the truths that Jesus reveals. There's an implication of weighing what we're hearing, determining how to apply it, and then acting on it. Jesus is saying here that we each have an obligation to ponder the meaning of his parables and teachings and ultimately to obey them. And as with much of life, what you put in is what you'll get out. With the measure you use, it will be measured to you and still more will be added to you. I found this quote that I think really gets at the heart of what Jesus is trying to tell us here. Note, however, that it is not one's ability to understand the parable that divides the faithful and the unfaithful but the pursuit of the answer. And I would expand that a little bit further and say, it's not just the pursuit of a specific answer to a specific parable that divides those with faith and those without, but it's the pursuit of Jesus. Luke includes a parable in his gospel account that includes a, um, a very similar verse to Mark four twenty-five. So let me summarize it quickly. There once was a nobleman uh, who left on a journey to be crowned king of his land. And he left three servants, the equivalent of $10,000 each. Later, when he had uh, finished being king, he returned and he called his servants in to see what they had done with what he left them. The first servant invested that money and used it to, uh, used it to make $100,000. In return, the king made him the governor of 10 cities. The second service invested that original 10,000 and made 50,000. So he was made the governor of five cities. But the last servant, oh, he just buried the 10,000 in the ground and he brought it back to the king, too afraid to invest and potentially lose the money and get in trouble for it. Well, the lack of initiative did not please the king, and he punished the servant. And he said to those who stood by, take the mina from him and give it to the one who has 10 cities. And they said to him, Lord, he has 10 cities. I tell you, that to everyone who has, more will be given, but from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. This is a parable of stewardship in the absence of the king. And we live in this exact reality right now. There is an expectation that we actually do something with what we've been given, this gospel truth. Because if we don't do anything with it, maybe we don't really have it. Now, Before Derek gets a bunch of emails about my theology, there is no earning or losing of salvation being implied here. I'm not saying we must earn our faith through any kind of action. Justification is by faith alone and only through the grace of God. Ephesians 2 8 and 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. But as John Piper has so powerfully said, the faith that justifies is the faith that sanctifies. If you have a saving faith in Jesus, you will progressively look more like him. You will do good works. Because right after Ephesians 2, 8, 9 comes verse 10. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Actions don't earn your faith, they prove them. And where there is no sanctification, meaning there are no good works, no clear pursuit of Jesus, no acting more like Jesus at work, at school, at home, if there is no proof of sanctification, then there might be no faith. Because the faith that justifies is the same faith that sanctifies. I think Satan has done a masterful job convincing so many of us in the American church, maybe many of us at Grace Church, to bury our coin in the sand, to hide our lamp, and to just wait for Jesus' return. He has deceived so many of us into an apathetic faith that doesn't involve a pursuit of Jesus. And friends, that actually isn't faith at all. I read a story about a woman who approached her pastor and said, I just wanna be a Christian. I don't wanna be a disciple. I like my life the way it is. I believe that Jesus died for my sins and that I'll be with him when I die. Why do I have to be a disciple? Church, this mindset of just running out the clock until either Jesus comes back or you die and go to heaven is a spiritual passivity that is not the faith that Jesus provides. I recently read a, a fantastic book, Renovation of the Heart by Dallas Willard. And in it he says, a fundamental mistake of the conservative side of the American church today and much of the Western church is that it takes as its basic goal to get as many people as possible ready to die and go to heaven. It aims to get people into heaven rather than to get heaven into people. The way to get as many people into heaven as you can is to get heaven into as many people as you can. That is to follow the path of genuine spiritual transformation or full throttle discipleship of Jesus Christ. The faith that Jesus provides is a full-throttle, risk-taking faith that pursues truth and the application of it against the backdrop of the reality of the kingdom of God. Remember the mustard seed. Jesus ushered in this new kingdom that started small, but it's going to be colossal. Remember the growing seed. Even though it might look hopeless at times, and though we might not understand exactly how it's going to come about, this kingdom will surely come to fruition. We can take risks for the gospel, knowing how the story ends. Jesus wins. He defeats sin and evil and suffering and disease. And for those of us who claim Jesus, we win with him. My fear is that our general knowledge of Jesus and attendance at church is the little that will be taken away from so many of us. My fear is that so many in our midst would settle for a passive, risk-averse faith that isn't faith at all. My fear is that too many are content with a cold religion rather than relentlessly pursuing Jesus and his kingdom. So here's my big idea. The kingdom of God is here, what are you doing with it? We've come up with four themes that crop up over and over again in Mark. And the discipleship theme that I think applies to this passage is son of God, son of man. And as with all the themes, we've come up with a question for us to ponder. And for this one, it's, how does this picture of Jesus compel me to live differently? Or let me state it this way. How does this picture of true faith that Jesus describes compel me to live differently? How does this idea of a faith that involves a dogged pursuit of Jesus compel me to live my every single day differently? Remember the third soil from the parable last week. The one with the seed sown among the thorns where the cares of the world and the desire for riches choke the seed and it produces no fruit. In Scripture, it's clear. No fruit means no faith. But the last soil, the good soil, produced a crop 30, 60, 100-fold. How can we partner with the Holy Spirit so that our faith produces fruit, both personally and publicly? Personally. Are you pursuing his word? Are you finding your chair, seeking out moments of solitude with God and spending time in prayer? Are you pursuing his church? Are you involved in Christian community, maybe in a, a life group or through serving on a team? If I observed your private life, would I be able to see a pursuit of Jesus? And not just personally, but how are you pursuing the application of Jesus in your public life? Not just punching a clock to get paid every two weeks or mindlessly performing activities. Instead, are you actively pursuing the attributes of God's kingdom to bring them to bear as much as is possible in this world for His glory? Are you pursuing God's justice as a police officer or lawyer, looking out for those who God cares for so deeply, the orphan, the foreigner, and the widow? Are you pursuing God's healing as a doctor or nurse or EMT? helping to wipe the tears from the eyes of those enduring pain and suffering and disease? Are you pursuing the truth and knowledge of God as a teacher or parent, instilling wisdom, discipline, and a love for God's law on the next generation? Are you pursuing the beauty of God as an artist, generating glimpses of the depths of God's imagination, creativity, and splendor? Are you replicating God's provision for your fellow humans as a business owner or employee, fulfilling a need by providing a product or service? Are you pursuing the love of God as a friend, a neighbor, a family member, a coworker, showing love to those who you disagree with and sacrificing for others to the point it hurts? Now, some of you might be sitting there, evaluating yourself and remembering the early days of your faith. When you were on fire for God, pursuing Jesus and taking the gospel with you everywhere in word and deed. And now, the shine is worn off. Life looks a lot more like it used to before Jesus. Apathy and indifference mark your spiritual life now. If that's you, I want you to hear me clearly. Don't walk away from this morning and become burdened with shame or guilt. That's not my intent and that's not God's intent. Rather, I want to inspire action And the first act is to confess that you've taken your focus off Jesus. That you've become consumed by lesser things. It's a simple acknowledgement that you've fallen short. It's that easy. Then, repent. That's the hard one. Take steps back towards Jesus, back into a pursuit of Him. As the Apostle Paul sought to do, forget what lies behind and strain towards what lies ahead. This path of sanctification, the long road of looking more like Jesus over your lifetime is one of constant two steps forward and one step back. And if you've wandered away, if you've become distracted, if you've lost your passion, get back in the game. It's never too late. God chose you for a specific reason to accomplish a special task. It's time to be who God designed you to be. What could it look like if everybody in your family was pursuing Jesus together? What could it look like if you brought a passion for the attributes of God back into your work? What could it look like if Grace Church was known even more as a group of people relentlessly pursuing Jesus together? What kind of impact could we have in the city, in this county, in this region? What would it look like if the American church actually pursued the kingdom of God with a passionate and risk-taking faith? If you have ever questioned whether you could have an impact in this world, let me assure you, when you pursue Jesus and a relationship with him, along with others in a local church, you will have an impact that extends into eternity, whether you get to see it on this side of heaven or not. So as we get ready to wrap up here, I wanna give us a next step. And I wanna go back to our twist on the discipleship question that I mentioned earlier. How does this picture of true faith that Jesus describes compel me to live differently. Please take time to reflect on this question this week. Seriously, set aside five, 10, 15 minutes, whatever, but but please chew on this question. I'd encourage you to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal something to you that you might not see. And then here's the hard part, but also the exciting part. Go do it. Be doers of the word and not hearers only. The original audience expected the kingdom of God to start with a bang and make immediate progress. Instead, they got a mustard seed, a slumbering farmer, and confusing parables. And yet this is how God chose to break into our world and start a movement that would ultimately bring his children back to him. This reality requires a response and it requires action on our part. It requires pursuit and risk and church. Please know it is so worth it. I'd love to end our time together praying over us as a church. So, would you join me? Father, my words might have come out sharp, and where they did, would your spirit soften them? But, Father, I believe that, uh, I, I hope that my words were also meant for some, for many who are hearing this. And so, for those individuals, Father, would your spirit go ahead of them? Would your spirit help them to land and to make a life-lasting change that results in a pursuit of your son Jesus and in a glorification of your coming kingdom? Father, I pray uh, over Grace Church and all who are watching and listening, wherever they may be, that we would be a people marked by the pursuit of your son Jesus and the mission that you've given your church. Father, I pray that each of us would have an impact where we live, where we work, uh, where we play every aspect of our lives, Father. I pray would come under this idea of pursuit of your son, Jesus, and what he stands for and for the coming kingdom. Would we be known by that? Would we have an impact for that? So Father, I pray this blessing over our church and everyone watching and listening with the power of your Holy Spirit in the name of your son, Jesus, amen. The kingdom of God is here. What are you doing with it?